If you're new with us, we've been uh, working our way through Luke's gospel for over a year, and we mapped it out so that we could be on this chapter on Easter, and remarkably it worked. And uh, here we are on uh, the resurrection account in Luke's gospel, uh, in a, an amazing story. Um, I cannot do this story justice, it's so remarkable. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us today to preach a better sermon than I've prepared, all right? Father, we thank you for your word today. Did our hearts not burn within us as he opened the scriptures? We pray you would do that in our hearts today, that we would not be warmed just by a holiday, as it were, but that your word would do work in our hearts so that we may soar in worship and delight to obey you. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Have you ever had your hopes dashed? You thought your team had a shot this year at March Madness, and they went out in the second round, or if you're a Purdue fan, the first round. You thought that girl was the one, and she dumped you for another guy. You thought that car was a steal, and it turned out to be a piece of junk. You thought after graduation, you'd land your dream job, and it hasn't worked out that way. We've all experienced disappointment in some way. We can relate to Fontaine's song in Les Mis, I dreamed a dream in times gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. But let me ask you, have you ever had your hopes dashed only later to discover that they weren't? Now that's thrilling, isn't it? I know a guy who was trying to get into the PhD program at his school and he needed a good GPA, he needed to pass the uh, GRE, the verbal and the writing piece. And he failed the, the verbal part, which was graded immediately. And back in the day, they would mail you the, the results of your writing score. And he assumed that his hopes were gone for PhD studies. And he goes in and sees the department head and tells him that uh, he's packing it all up and he's going home. And the department head said that he looked like his uh, dog had died uh, when, when he was giving him this report. And lo and behold, about a week later, he gets his score and he made a perfect score on his writing uh, component and was able then to go ahead and enter the program and finish his PhD. I think about that sort of thing when I come to Luke 24 because we meet these Emmaus disciples whose hopes they thought were gone. Only they later discovered that they were not, that Jesus had actually rose from the dead. In fact, uh, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 17. They just stood there long-faced like they had lost their best friend. It's a real picture of sadness as they're trying to put the pieces together about what happened to Jesus. In verse 21, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But now they're ready to pack it up. But they later discover the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, something that seemed too good to be true at first. In fact, a key feature of this chapter is this idea of surprise. No one is anticipating a resurrection. Not the women, not the disciples, not the Emmaus travelers. But their sadness and their skepticism gives way to joy when they discover the life-changing truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And we can sympathize with them because up to this point in the Bible, usually the stories end with a funeral. You think about uh, the, some of the, the uh, books of the Bible. Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But the Gospels end with Jesus' resurrection. And for all who are in Christ, your story doesn't end with a funeral either. Life has just begun for us. And that's why this whole chapter just says good news. It's good news in a world of bad news. It's good news in a world of broken hearts. It's good news in a world of failed dreams. 
Luke 24 is the food that our souls need. And the way we fight dashed hopes and failed dreams is by remembering the resurrection every day. This is a truth not just to die on, but to live on. The resurrection saves us not just from death, but also despair. The resurrection is God's triumph over Satan's designs. It demonstrates God's power over death. And it is the way in which or in the resurrection of Jesus is the, uh, is the uh, or, well, Paul says it this way, that Jesus was the firstborn of the dead, that he is the trailblazer. And because he lives, you and I also will live. Michael Green in his great little book, The Empty Cross of Jesus, speaking of Jesus as this trailblazer who went on before us, gives an analogy that's striking. He says, in the Middle Ages, it was debated whether or not there was a sea route to India. And there was a lot of debate in political and economic circles over this. People wanted to get to that rich land of spices and perfumes, but they couldn't make it around the tip of Africa. And every attempt failed until one Portuguese explorer, Vasco da Gama, was able to get around the tip and reach India by sea. And ever since he sailed back, it has been impossible to doubt that there was a way to the Orient. And it was renamed that Cape to Cape of Good Hope. And Green says it was like that with Jesus rose from the dead. He's the first in sequence. More will follow. He is the Christ of good hope that we worship today. We ask, is there any way through death? Can you go into death and back out into life? And the answer is yes, because Jesus took the voyage into darkness and death, and he came out in resurrection glory. And he can take your hand when you die, and my hand when I die, and say, I've been there, and I'll lead you out. Because what is true of Christ is true of his people. What is true for the head is true for the body. And this morning we share in that resurrection life of Jesus and one day we'll enjoy it in all of its fullness when we too are raised from the dead. So it's good news. It's good news in two ways here in our text. First of all, it's good news for skeptical people. And secondly, it's good news for sad people. So good news for skeptical people. There are fingerprints of truthfulness all over this account. And I think Luke wants us to see a handful of them. Let me point you to four faith-building elements of this resurrection account. First of all, there is the empty tomb. The ladies go to the tomb early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week at the, at the crack of dawn. Verse 10, we see that uh, in that number includes Mary Magdalene, Joanna, along with Mary, the mother of James, and some other women. Luke tells us that they took spices, fully anticipating to anoint the body. But something surprising happens. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Matthew tells us that this was a large stone. And then we read in verse 3, they went in to this tomb and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Where did he go? In the words of the Chicago White Sox announcer after a strikeout, he gone. (laughs) He's not there. And they're they're trying to put all of these pieces together. And you have to do something with the empty tomb. Um, If the Jews could have proven that Jesus was there or something had happened to his body, one of the theories was the disciples stole the body, they would surely put this forward. So people through the years have suggested other things, like, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just was resuscitated. Or everybody was hallucinating on this particular day. They had some gummies, and it was, it was just wild. Everybody thought Jesus was resurrected. Um, well, some have suggested that Jesus was put into a ditch and eaten by dogs. 
Now, the best answer is just straightforward. God raised Jesus from the dead. And the remarkable thing is, he was raised bodily. Not, we, we're not just saying that there was some sort of spiritual resurrection. You couldn't prove or disprove that. But that his body wasn't there. Right. He was raised from the dead. And Paul says later in Acts, why is it incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why, do you, why is it thought of you know, incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? Well, that's one faith-building element. You've got to do something with this empty tomb. Secondly, there is the word of Jesus then that also is supporting the credibility of this story. At this point, the women are uh, puzzled by the whole ordeal, and they see these two men in dazzling apparel, uh, angels. And they're frightened, and they bow their faces to the ground, something that happens when, uh, in the Scriptures when you encounter uh, such uh, beings. And they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that a great question? Why are you looking for a living person in a cemetery? He is not here, but has risen. But notice that the angels don't first point them in the tomb to do some investigation of what might have happened. The angel points them back to the words of Jesus. Remember how he told you that while he was still in Galilee. And then they quote some of the uh, predictions that we've read about already, like in Luke 9 and Luke 18, that Jesus must uh, be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And the angels then provoke these ladies to remember what he said. And I think this is very important. They are pointed back to the words of Jesus. And that is where Jesus points the Emmaus travelers as well, isn't it, later in the chapter. He doesn't first tell them to look at my hands and touch me. He says, you should believe the Bible. You see, and we believe in resurrection today because we believe in the truthfulness of Scripture. We go back to the Bible again and again and our faith is built up as these things have been taught to us. We can experience the thrill of looking into the empty tomb by looking into an open Bible. Points them back to the Scriptures. You can trust in the Scriptures. So that's the second faith-building element. The third one is the testimony of women, verses 9 and 10. We've talked about uh, these sorts of things before, where this is an important reason to believe in this account, uh, namely, that the women were some of the chief eyewitnesses, which doesn't sound like anything really in the modern age, but in the ancient world, women lacked credibility. And if you wanted to put forward a case, make up a story, you're not going to use women as your choice witnesses, especially one particular lady in this count, Mary Magdalene, who previously had seven demons. You're only telling this story this way if it actually happened this way. Because it doesn't advance your case at all. It's not more believable to people if you're saying, well, the first uh, witnesses were women. In fact, Mary Magdalene was called the, has been called the first evangelist. But you see, Luke isn't trying to uh, do any of that sort of shady uh, storytelling. He's simply telling, the way, uh, telling things the way they happen, that these ladies were there. And this is why Celsus, an old, old Greek philosopher who was no friend of Christianity, uh, this is one of his main arguments against Christianity. He says, quote, one of the reasons we know it can't be true is that it is based on the testimony of women. Oh, Celsus wouldn't make it too well today, would he? Um, uh, in in uh, saying things like this. But that's because in ancient cultures, the, the women were marginalized. And yet here they are on the first Sunday morning. Here is Ma Mary Magdalene, who has been transformed by Jesus. And she then goes, tells 
and it goes to tell the disciples. And notice the response of the disciples. This is a fourth faith-building element. Notice their skepticism. It seemed to them, in verse 11, like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. <laughs> so the first people that had to be convinced about the resurrection was the disciples. At least Peter goes to investigate, doesn't he? In verse 12, he rose and ran into the tomb, stooping, looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He sees the linen clothes. Now, I like John's account where he records Peter and, and John running, and John outruns him in, to the tomb. And then John also says that the linen cloths were folded up and placed by itself. So you might say that Peter witnesses two miracles. Jesus rose from the dead, and a single guy folded his clothes. He, he, and if, these, if it was just grave robbers, that's been suggested before, I doubt they leave something behind, that they're stealing a body. You might as well take their clothes. Um, and you certainly aren't going to fold it up. And yet Peter looks in it, and he sees, and he's marveling. Now, why is this important? Well, the skepticism for the disciples is actually a strong supporting point for this account. You often hear today that, well, these were gullible people. They were, these were primitive people. They were more likely to believe in resurrection and miracles than we modern people. But notice in this story, no one was anticipating resurrection. Even though Jesus had told them multiple times. Nobody even says, hey, you know, didn't he say something about the third day? Let's at least go have a look. They don't, they don't remember it. By the way, if you're a school teacher, this should encourage you. If your students always forget what you tell them. Um, the ladies needed an angel to remind them. And the disciples didn't remember either. No, when you read this account, you should see that they were probably less likely to believe than we are. Greeks and Romans did not believe in resurrection. They believed that you needed to be separated from your body. Jewish people believed in final resurrection, but it was a bit vague as to the specifics. But eventually, these disciples believe because they see him. They are the chief witnesses, and they become bold witnesses. They turn the ancient world upside down because they knew Jesus had risen from the dead. My friend, there are good reasons for you to believe. It takes faith to believe, but it's not a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light. There are good reasons to believe in this account. It may take you a while. Maybe you're here and you haven't believed yet. Maybe you have questions. That's great. We just had a great testimony from one of our missionaries that's ministering among an unreached people group who met a guy in a grocery store six, or, uh, six years ago. And uh, after two years of him reading the Bible, he just recently professed faith in Jesus. Now four of his friends are reading the Bible uh, with him. And you've got questions, you bring them, and we want to say to you, there are good reasons to believe, and we would love to talk to you. This is good news for skeptical people. The resurrection is intellectually credible. All right? Secondly, good news for sad people. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I think if I could go back at any point in history, maybe this would be the place I would go as Jesus is just walking along the road, the resurrection Jesus, with these two Emmaus disciples. The story is a bit cheeky, as the Brits say, because it, it pokes fun at these guys for not believing. Okay, so what's going on now? Jesus has risen from the dead. What do you do? Go for a walk and go on a Bible study. It's a Bible study walk with Jesus. After rising from the dead, 
They walk seven miles. This is not M&M's eight mile. This is Luke's seven mile that they're on. And we could break it down in four parts. First, there is the walking with Jesus. We read about it beginning in verse 13. They're going to this village uh, of Emmaus. Uh, we read of one of their names in the story, Cleopas. We don't know the other individual. It might be his wife, or it could just be another friend. But as they're walking and talking about the things that had just happened, namely the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, Jesus draws near with them. Don't you just love Jesus' personality? How he just, he just pulls up next to these guys. And he's like, what's good? And they're basically like, nothing's good. <laughs> right? Their eyes are kept from recognizing him, verse 17, or 16 rather. God will eventually open their eyes, but at this point they cannot see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus then asks them what they've been talking about, and they stood still looking sad. This is life without resurrection. Sad. Their dreams had been crushed. And so Cleopas asked him, ironically, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does know, not know what has happened? <laughs> Ironically, he's the only one in Jerusalem that does know what has happened. But they're like, have you been under a rock? He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Worked on that one. <clears throat> and so Jesus goes along with them, doesn't he, in verse 19? He's like, what things? And then watch what happens next. They begin to tell Jesus about Jesus. <laughs> and this is Cleopas' sermon. Kids, see if you can uh, find what's missing in this sermon about Jesus. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet in mighty, in deed and word before God and all the people, and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, Yes, besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. There's a, there's a component missing in the story of Jesus. He was from Nazareth. He was a prophet. His miracles were amazing. His teaching had authority. He was crucified. And oh, by the way, it's the third day since he's been crucified. There's only one important bit missing in the gospel according to Cleopas at this point. And that is the resurrection from the dead. That he rose from the dead. This is an example of a sermon without a resurrection. Which isn't good news. Paul says apart from the resurrection, we have nothing to preach. We don't have good news. People would come in on Easter and be like, man, we got some good news. Yeah, what is it? Psych, we don't have, we don't have anything. Like we're just going to be plant food when we die. It's all over, just eat, drink, and be merry. No, the resurrection is telling us something wonderful. Namely that death has been defeated. They eventually latch on to this, but at this point, this was unimaginable. And that's what Jesus did on this first Easter, is he conquered the, 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 the great foe, namely death. Some of you remember back in 1990 when uh, Tyson fought against Buster Douglas. It was 42 to 1 odds, and Buster Douglas did the unthinkable. He knocked out Iron Mike. Up until that point, it was victim after victim at the hands of Mike Tyson, and then Douglas did the, uh, uh, one in what is considered the greatest upset in boxing history. Well, Jesus is the true and better Buster Douglas. <laughs> there was a foe that took out victim after victim after victim until Jesus, on the third day, 
defeated death through his resurrection from the dead. He gave death the death blow. And now we say with Paul, oh death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God for Jesus in that victory. Luke says it was on the third day, the, the, or the Cleopas says, which is um, a day that Jesus had predicted. Donnie said a few weeks ago, Jesus called his shot. And that he predicted not just his death, but also his resurrection. You've got to be really confident to predict a resurrection. And not just predict it, but predicted it on the third day. Now there's some biblical antecedents to this. Isaac was delivered from Abraham's knife on the third day. The Lord comes down and meets his people at Sinai on the third day. Hosea promised that the Lord, interestingly, would raise Israel on the third day. And Jesus here predicted that he would rise. And they're looking at him, but they don't, they don't understand it yet. They, they do have a thread of hope. Notice verses 22 to 4. They give this report about the ladies. They say the women are, have amazed us. They went to the tomb early. They did not find his body. And they came back seeing visions, uh, saying about uh, visions of angels and that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as they had said, but they did not see. They're, they're amazed by this, but they're still filled with gloom. They don't doubt that the tomb is empty, but they haven't believed in the resurrection because they can't see Jesus. They don't, they, their eyes are still um, veiled. They're looking at the risen Savior as they're saying these things. So this is them walking with Jesus. And then we see them learning from Jesus. Jesus, again, doesn't first direct them to his physical body. He, he directs them first to the scriptures. And he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he would first suffer and then would rise from the dead. And the whole plot line of the Old Testament is pointing to him. As Don Carson put it, the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. You notice that phrase, Moses and all the prophets. This is referring to the whole Old Testament witness. Throughout the Bible, we find the Messiah. Because there is a messianic wind that blows through the pages of the God-breathed Bible. The law, the prophets, and the writings, verse 44, the, the three-part division of the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled all the expectations and all of those promises. I'm the completion of it. And once people recognize this, they begin to understand the, the whole Bible because you need the center part of the story to understand the other parts of it, right? When Paul met the resurrected Christ, he then understood the cross. He didn't understand it yet. And once he understood the two together, then the whole Bible made sense. That it's a unified book of redemptive history of which Jesus is the hero. But if you don't know this bit, it's hard to make sense of the, the first part of the scriptures. It's kind of like the movie Sixth Sense, if you've ever watched that. You really can only watch it twice. The first time, you don't know what's going on. And then you get to the end, and you're like, oh, Bruce Willis is dead. I'm going to go back and watch it all over again. And you watch it, and you're like, oh, I see, I see. And it's kind of like that with the Bible. You read the whole story... Once you see the end, then the, the first part begins to make sense. Only unlike the movie Sixth Sense, the end isn't about a guy being dead, but a guy being alive. Right. So they're walking with Jesus. They're learning from Jesus. 
Thirdly, they're recognizing Jesus. They draw near to the village to which they were going, and, they act, and he acted as if he were going further, and they urged him to, to stay uh, with them. So he does. Jesus accepts their invitation. And then, verse 30, Jesus begins to take over the meal. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. I don't know if you ever had a guest that takes over your kitchen when they show up to your house. Uh, maybe your father-in-law, mother-in-law. Um, I, I suppose if they're good cooks, you're happy with it. Jesus sort of just takes over here. He's acting as the host in someone else's house. That's because Jesus is the great host, isn't he? And as he's breaking and giving out the bread, it's in this act, verse 31, that their eyes are opened and they recognized him. We don't know exactly what it was that was going on on a human level. Was it the scars on his hands that they recognized? Was it the way he broke bread? Was there something more? Was this a meal that led to the Lord's Supper? We don't know, but we know that God chose this act of breaking bread to open up their eyes and see Jesus for who he is. And we continue to see Jesus in his word and at the table. And one day we'll be at a table with him. And we'll see him. Now I feel a bit sorry for these guys. They're easy to make fun of, but you feel a bit sorry for them when they finally get the answers and they see Jesus and then he vanishes. <laughs> and they're like, hey, where did he go? <laughs> I have some questions. And then he just vanishes. There, there's it's a stunning idea. A lot of mystery related to a glorified body. It's recognizable, but it's different. But the central issue here is that they recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread. And that just leads to the final part. And that is the celebration of the risen Jesus. After Jesus vanishes, the companions reflect on his previous teaching on the road. And they say, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? Something was happening inside of them. And if you're a Christian, you know this experience. That you're encountering God in His Word, and your heart begins to be inflamed with joy, with passion, with warmth, with love. This is how we should come to our personal Bible study. Lord, fill me with passion. It's how we should listen to sermons. Right? We don't study the Bible to make our heads fat, but to set our hearts ablaze. Did our hearts not burn within us? I need to see Jesus every day in his word. I need my heart to be warmed by his love and grace every day. I need to gaze upon his beauty and his power. Something powerful happened in them. And then they have to go tell it to someone. And so they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So another seven miles. If my math is correct, that's 14. That's, that's a long, that's a good bit of steps on your Fitbit, isn't it? on the first Easter. They're logging some steps, man. And they go back to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now watch what just happened. They go back with the best news in the world. Jesus has risen from the dead, and they get to tell their friends about it, and by the time they arrive, someone steals their thunder. Do you notice them when they said, the Lord has risen indeed? And they're like, oh man, we were going to be the ones to tell you. You could imagine them building up to this moment as they're walking along. Hey, how do you think we should tell them? Should we be discreet about it? Should we bury the lead? You know, should we say, guess who we had dinner with? And they get right there and they say, hey, he's alive. And they're like, oh man, that was our story. 
But isn't it fitting? Because it's not just their story. It's not just the disciples' story. This is all of God's people's story. The Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. And we too should be giddy with excitement as we share it with others. It's good news for sad people. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So you get a picture of them now just sitting around together, reflecting on everything. Can you imagine being, we don't know what they were saying. Did they just swap stories? I imagine one of the ladies at least would have said, see, we told you. You didn't believe us. Did they order a falafel from Levi's shop and call Donkey Dash to bring it to them? (laughs) We don't know what they did, but sadness gave way to joy because in the resurrection, our greatest problem has been solved. And if you're not a believer, this is what we hold out to. We don't hold out to you, hey, become religious. Get a bit more moral. We hold out to you the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And this Savior has forgiven us our sins and given us eternal life. When Tim Keller was in college, the former pastor at Redeemer, well-known author, he was converted his sophomore year of college at Bucknell University. And he began doing evangelism on campus through a campus ministry called InterVarsity Fellowship. And in 1970, there were protests on campus uh, over uh, campuses around the country over the extension of the Vietnam War. And students at Bucknell were protesting and they were refusing to go to class. And uh, the 15 students that were part of InterVarsity Fellowship Ministry were praying about what they should do. Classes had been canceled and the students were just gathering in the quad protesting every day. There was an open mic and it uh, favored a more progressive view of things. And so these students pondered about, hey, how should we respond to all this? (laughs) So one student eventually made a sign big white letters on a black background and posted it on the outskirts of the crowd of the quad. And the sign said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. (laughs) Isn't that a great sign? The, The resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. And sophomore Tim Keller sat at a table and People mocked, they had eye rolls, they used some foul language, but he would sit down with any who wanted to have a substantial conversation. And he pointed them to the reasons that he believed, gave some literature that had been helpful for him. And I love that message because that's essentially the message of Luke 24. The resurrection is intellectually credible and it's personally satisfying. The disciples are left here marveling at this. And soon they will hold up their own sign in their preaching. Preaching the resurrection to everyone. And if you're a believer today in Jesus Christ, you know we have good reason to celebrate. This hope does not disappoint. There is an empty tomb in the Middle East and an occupied throne in heaven. And so let's give praise to our risen King today. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would burn its truths into our hearts that you would stir our affections for the Lord Jesus, that we would never get over the wonder of what he has done for us. We thank you for the promise of bodily resurrection for all your saints. We thank you for the promise of new creation to come. We thank you for the promise that there will be one day no more sadness and no more death. We thank you for all that the resurrection points us to. And I pray that we would deal with the sadness of our lives, the disappointment of our lives with resurrection truth. 
that we would not just die on this truth, but we would also live on it, knowing that it saves us not only from death, but also despair. And we thank you for all of this and all that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.